This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Security controls fail everywhere. They fail constantly, and worst of all, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the leading automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, and real security outcomes. Get it all with Attack IQ. Plus, check out the Attack IQ Academy for free cybersecurity training featuring the good people here at Hacker Valley Studio. Register today at academy.attackiq.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. In this episode, we've brought in a distinguished enterprise infrastructure engineer, Kelsey Hightower. In this episode, we get to learn about Kelsey's background, his philosophies on learning and teaching, and also words of wisdom that anyone can benefit from. Let's jump right into this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio. In this episode, we've brought in a special guest. Our guest today is Kelsey Hightower, principal engineer at Google and also co-author of Kubernetes Up and Running, Dive into the Future of Infrastructure. Kelsey, you are the man in infrastructure, engineering, and really all things Kubernetes. It's a great honor to speak to you today and welcome to the podcast. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Kelsey, we are beyond excited to have this conversation. We've wanted to have a conversation with you for about a year at this point. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. I'm, uh, you know, some would consider a self-taught engineer, but really learned from books, open source projects. Started my life out as a small business owner, little small computer shop, consulting gigs, then moving to a system administrator. And then later on, I probably worked on some of the tools you may use, Puppet, contributed to Ansible, Terraform. I spent some time at CoreOS. Now I'm at Google Cloud. When did your fascination with technology begin? Because it seems like you're such a prominent figure in the space. This had to have been an early story in your development. I think it's really post high school. You know, I did a few electives in high school, but I would say I really got into this just thinking of an alternative to college. So I jumped into... I would say more like tech support, consulting, you know, dropping Cat5 cable. And it took me probably another maybe three or four years after that, probably 2004-ish, to really dig into this world of open source and all the things that you can do with it as a user and as a contributor. One of the things that I like about open source that I also kind of learned about from you is your community and customer are the same. Did you always look at it that way or did that was that like an epiphany that came to you at some point? Yeah, I think that started, you know, just about five or six years ago when I joined the cloud. So when I worked at Puppet Labs, that was maybe the first taste of the separation between the open source community, right? Things are free software. Ideally, there's a free way to use the product. And, you know, a lot of times people in the community just saw themselves as two different things. Paying customers, on the other hand, would often leverage the same software, but 
in many ways back then, I think I still saw them as two different camps, right? You didn't want to talk commercial to the open source side. And, you know, you were very careful about talking about purely open source to the commercial side. And then recently, I would probably say in the last five years or so, I kind of changed that a little bit. I'd say, look, everyone is probably in your community and the, willing, the ones that are willing to pay you money, well, we call those customers. You know, what's interesting is when you look at your talks or when you're on a podcast or anything, you sort of go beyond just the bits and bytes. You talk about the human component. You're very motivational in that way. Would you say that's part of your personal or professional purpose? And, and how did you come to that conclusion? When I was studying to get into tech, you know, you know, like a lot of folks, most of my jobs are just straight fast food. And when you calculate retirement, you don't, you don't really see a retirement um, based on a fast food salary. Nothing wrong with those jobs, right? But, you know, I said, what kind of job can I get, especially if I decide uh, not to go to college? And so there was a, a human element to me even reaching for, you know, that first free BSD book on a bookshelf and taking it home and pouring over every page because all you have is $30. But what you know that you're doing, you know, you're on your mom's living room floor saying that if I put my all into this, maybe I'll get something back out. So my entry into tech was very human, right? It's like, how am I going to survive? How am I going to make a living? So it's just almost impossible for me to decouple uh, the human side of this particular profession. That's interesting that you were thinking about retirement, you know, working in fast food, young age. I know for me, it took me quite a while to start really thinking about retirement. What does that look like? And I, I saw that on Twitter, you had a recent post where you're asking people about what is their retirement number? How did you start thinking about retirement? I'm sure you were young at this point. It was early in your career. Why was retirement even on your mind? Well, I, I think this is where people need a little context, right? There was a time period, probably 2000. You know, I used to sleep in my car in the back of a small computer shop, right? I had money for one or two things. Do you have the rent for this small, you know, strip mall where you host your computer store or do you get an apartment? So I decided to get the computer store, right? So that means you sleep in the car because it, you know, maybe had a nice comfy seat or you sleep in the floor behind the register so no one could see. And so in the car one day, I was like, I will never be broke again. That's mm -hmm. a promise I made myself. So at that point in time, you know, you're about 22 years old. You're not thinking about retirement. You're thinking about not having to make these kind of decisions. And so later on in life, a few years later, you know, I start doing pretty well. There's a point in my life where I'm also managing comedians at the time and you know, I'm starting to make a little bit of money, enough to start saving, but I also noticed my lifestyle was attempting to match my new income, right? So you go get the newer car. I'm 5'9", and I go buy like a Chevy Suburban with barn doors. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm like, do I really need this much car? And, you know, you care about fashion, you know, $100 shoes and that kind of thing. And I decided to become a minimalist, right? So I remember I voluntarily repossessed my car, right? I was making my payments on time. I could afford it, but I decided I want to be debt-free. So I just went to the extreme, went back to the dealership and said, I want to turn in the car. And I was like, you can't do that. That's equivalent to a repossession. I was like, do whatever you got to do. Tell me the balance. I just want to pay it off. And I just rented cars when I needed them to go do service calls. And at that situation, at that point in my life, I decided to be debt-free. No more credit cards, mm -hmm. no more debt of any kind. If I couldn't pay for it, 
It wasn't going to happen. And what I noticed is that I was able to save money a lot faster. I thought about every single choice that I was making. And then later on in life, when the money really started to pour in, because I was, I felt like I was free to find the right job, not just the job to pay the bills, but the right job for where I wanted to be. Fast forward to that question you see on Twitter. Yes, I am very fortunate now to be thinking about retirement for me and my family and possibly doing some nice things for other people. And so I think it's this combination of being conscious about my situation that now where I am in my life, I'm 40 years old now, retirement is the burning question because I lived up to the promise I made myself in my car all those years ago. That is absolutely incredible. And it reminds me of my story. You know, I came from the poverty line and I told myself I was never going to allow myself or my children experience that level. And when people think about that, they think about how do they get themselves out of their socioeconomic status and how do they move forward? Is that also a driving factor for all the evangelizing that you're doing in technology? I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the tweet that I did later that day was learning is an investment. Mm-hmm. You know, when I bought that book for $30, $30 was a lot of cash for me back then, right? I'm thinking that's six meals, right? So if I want to trade six meals for a $30 book, then that was a big investment for me. And my approach to learning has always been the more skills that I require or acquire equals value. And so when I'm putting together like a keynote or you see me through a tutorial on GitHub, I know for a fact there is someone somewhere that if they just learn how to do that particular thing, it could be a promotion at their job. It could give them the confidence that, oh, this is all it takes to set up a global load balancer with some containers running on Kubernetes. Those moments spark that opportunity for other people. So this is why I take it very serious when I'm presenting this information. So it's not just fun, it's not just a show, but I know I'm helping someone else make an investment in their own career. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about that comedy management experience in your life. Tell us the story of that. What was that journey like? And then how do you apply anything that you learned from that journey to your technology career? I'm fresh out of high school, really, and I have this computer store. And one of my best friends, uh, Ronnie Jordan, he was about a one year older than me. And, you know, he said he was doing comedy. And so he came by the store and he was like, I need a manager. You seem to know business pretty well. Uh, let's try it out. And early in your com- comedic career, you know, we're in Atlanta. And so you have very different communities in the inner city. We had, you know, comedy clubs where predominantly black audience and whew, you had to come with it or you get booed in the first, <laughs> yep. you got like 37 seconds or mm-hmm. uh, you get death wishes. And then there's also a north side of town where it's a predominantly white audience. And, you know, you got to go more comedy central style. And so I was like, look, before I can manage you, first of all, you're making like $25. Like, I don't know what 20% of that's going to do for me, but you know, let, let me go check it out. So we go to the first comedy show and right, he kills. We're in the predominantly black club. And I'm like, wow, I don't know if you do this at the other club, if that's going to work. And mm-hmm. we drive an hour north and he goes into that club and he switches it up. Similar jokes, but just tuned right on, right on time. And he kills there. And I was like, look, we can make this work. We're just going to have to figure out how to get more than $25 per show. But we're in. And that run lasted about five or seven years for me. He still does it today. 
and we've done some big tours like in arenas with the kings and queens of comedy uh ended up doing some consultancy on the tech side for latham entertainment these are the people behind you know the big movies around uh yeah. kings of comedy and we went on tour and i learned a lot around what goes into preparing to go on stage in front of a large audience the confidence you need to have the willingness to look them in their eyes and react to them so when you see me give a keynote i typically won't have any slides or any speaker notes because i've gotten to the point where i just feed off the audience and that's what a lot of good comedians do i gotta ask because chris always tries to get me to do this he's like ron we gotta do stand-up com comedy together <laughs> i'm like chris you do the stand-up comedy you know i'm more of like let's get on the stage like i would love to give a keynote like you but have you ever tried to get on stage and you know perform with your one of your best friends i don't think i have the courage to go into a talk or situation where i was expected to make someone laugh right that's a <laughs> lot of pressure now what happens at the conferences you know if you look if i go back and watch some of the keynotes i've given there are some points where you're like wow is this a comedy show like this is really good but that comes from just vibing off the audience. So if they will allow me to go there, I would try a joke or two. And if it works, then we can do that for the rest of the night. And so it's one of those things where when people are not expecting to laugh and you make them laugh, it becomes a very magical experience. When people pay you to make them laugh and they don't laugh, then it's horrible. Yeah, for sure. I did stand-up comedy in L.A. I, just one set. Uh, it was kind of a bucket list thing. But I tell you what, that year was the first time I ever done any community talks. I started with a lightning talk, just five minutes. And similar to you, I didn't want any slides. I wanted to focus on telling the story to the listeners. And it's funny because once I did that, I said, I'm going to make it a concerted effort to continue to get better at speaking. And by the end of the year, I did my first keynote and stand up comedy was a part of that journey for me, because I feel like if you can do stand up comedy, you can talk in front of anybody about anything, because that comedy bit that saying you're expected to make me laugh is a really, really hard thing to swallow. What is your, some of your tenets or your philosophies about getting better in the things that you do? Because you talked about skills. So what, what are some of the pieces of advice you have for folks out there about acquiring those skills? Well, number one, you know, I'm in the technology field and, you know, I've been a software engineer and I've done a lot of infrastructure uh, administration and you always got to make sure that you have those core skills locked in if you're going to wear those titles you got to make sure you can do the job so i make sure i stay up to date on the latest technology i'm always building something or a prototype making sure i keep my skills sharp so that's step one if you're going to have a role you know try to be the best you can in that role some people think that you got to figure out how to be number one look if you're in the top ten thousand in system administration or software engineering you're going to have a fine career Second is, you know, I try to make sure that I continue to grow as a human. So when it comes to communication, we know that communication is important, but you know, how do you invest in communication skills? So you talked about comedy and, and in the comedy world, you only have so much time to close the loop on a thought. You don't get a whole hour, right? You get to say something, make people laugh, and then you got to move on to the next joke. So you got to close the loop as soon as you open it. The other element that I like to keep my skills sharp in the communication side is the storytelling. So I always try my best to think about what story do I want to tell in this particular moment? 
And if I can get those things right, I notice most people really remember stories more than they remember maybe just a small, super technical presentation. From the way that you speak, it sounds like you might be building off quite a few fundamentals and you have a specific strategy or mindset for acquiring these fundamentals and and building on top of them. Like for me, I had to relearn how to learn. I had to learn how to read better. I had to learn how to memorize things better. And then that made everything easier for me. Are there any auxiliary skills that you focused on that help propel everything forward? I've learned to give myself time. You know, I think a lot of people, when you go to acquire a new set of skills, you don't know how long it's going to take or it should take. So what I typically do is I just try to get off the ground, right? If I follow, and if I want to learn a new programming language, I just start with the hello world, deploy it and see what's similar, right? Is the workflow similar? Do I write code in an editor still? Do I still run a build command? Can I package it in a similar way? And that gives me a little bit of confidence that, okay, so the fundamentals are roughly the same to the previous language. The syntax is different. And then I'm patient, right? So it's like, well, let me focus on tasks uh, that I really need to get done. And maybe this is the right language for that. I was writing a Chrome extension the other day and JavaScript's just the best language to do that in. So I continuously chip away at learning JavaScript based on the need at hand. I don't really care too much about necessarily being an expert in it, but I just slowly chip away every time a new opportunity to learn something comes around. And that level of patience keeps me from being frustrated, but it does keep me with a healthy pace of learning over time. You live in the world of cloud native now, and a lot of us do, but there are still folks out there that are still dealing with legacy infrastructure. Some people are intimidated by the cloud and all the new technologies that are popping up. What piece of advice would you have to to push people off of legacy and into the cloud and adopt some more new age technologies? This one is so tricky because I've lived in that world, right? I've joined teams where you know, decisions were made 20 years ago that they're asking the current team to support, who really had no say in the design, who really had no say in the previous 10 years of maintenance or some people neglect. When you think about like legacy technology, you know, I always ask people to maybe say, hey, like classic technology, right? This is the stuff that pays the bills, uh, it works. And I always ask people to reflect like, why is it in a situation where you believe you need to go find something new? And whatever the behaviors that led to that, you got to ask yourself, so what's different now? Are the behaviors are going to be different to the new things, right? Because I've seen people take technologies like Kubernetes and make it work like their previous virtualization setup, right? They'll do everything possible to make the new thing work the old way. So what I really caution people is that most of this cloud native stuff is simply a checkpoint on the previous 10 years of know-how, right? So it's not necessarily going to be brand new. If you think about Nginx versus Envoy, Envoy proxy is basically an HTTP proxy, but it was designed, I guess, for this cloud-native world where it can be configured through a centralized control plane instead of just a config file. It has some of the things that you would find in something like Nginx, like rate limiting and authorization plugins. So if you squint at it, the fundamentals are similar but what it's optimized for is some of the more popular patterns that you see today in the cloud or some people will even call like a service mesh where you go and give these capabilities across all your applications. When I think of classic or legacy infrastructure and also looking at more modern tech, 
either direction I choose, there might be a lot of things that I need to do. There might be a lot of steps. And some of these steps may be unnecessary. You were speaking about minimalism in your life. Do you also take those philosophies and apply that to your work? Like looking at deploying a big project with Kubernetes, maybe it's a very heavyweight for the task at hand. Do you ever look at things and say, hmm, I'm going to do this the old fashioned, the classic way? Typically, if I'm going to learn some new software or how to install it or automate it, I usually will start with a VM. In 2021, uh, Kelsey will start with a VM. And I'll take the binary, I'll take the config files, I'll get it working on just a single VM and make sure I understand why am I using these conflict flags? Why am I listening on this port? Is it secure? And once I kind of lock it down in a sandbox like that, then I'll ask, okay, what's next? You know, do I need to make it HA? Do I need a second VM? And once I really understand how to do it manually, I reevaluate the manual steps to see if there's anything I can collapse. And I'm known to contribute to a lot of open source projects because I might have a workaround that's like, ah, this is just way too many steps. If only open policy agent could pull IAM credentials from this VM that I'm on, and I'll stop what I'm doing and go contribute to open policy agent, which was that particular fix was merged uh, late last year. And so now anyone trying to run this particular piece of software on a VM will have less steps to do it. Then go back into the project and say, okay, now it's ready for automation tool. And maybe I can pick Kubernetes. And if I pick Kubernetes, I'm just trying to translate everything I learned with just enough Kubernetes to make it work. And so that's usually my approach, manual first, get the process down, make sure I understand what I'm doing, and then ask myself, what's the next pragmatic destination? And then how much better is it going to be than just using something like Ansible and a couple of VMs? It reminds me of something that Ron and I created, which is a framework called Exist. And it's an acronym that is for people to explore new worlds and be the best that they possibly can in them. And it's EX, which is explore, I is immerse, S is study, and T is translate or transform. I'm thinking about the I, the immersion. What was the last subject in technology that you were completely immersed in for any appreciable amount of time? And tell us a little bit about that journey the serverless world. So, you know, coming from infrastructure where a lot of my skills were around setting everything up, being responsible for the kernel tuning, uh, patching those systems, babysitting them after they're up and running. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. And then a couple of years ago when serverless, you know, became like this really big thing where people were starting to understand the pricing model. So instead of paying for idle infrastructure, you're going to be charged for your workload. And then also having the machines disappear, right? What happens when I can no longer SSH into a machine? I can't run TCP dump to debug the networking layer. What does that world look like? So I decided to help contribute to Go support in Google Cloud Functions, which was you know the event-driven kind of original ideas around serverless, right? Write a, just enough of code to respond to events in the cloud provider. And that was pretty cool. But what I quickly learned is that at the runtime layer, you kind of learn all the tricks necessary to build a service that's managed and has a price point where you only pay for the workload. So you really learn about the trade-offs that a cloud provider makes, how we think about pricing, uh, the worker nodes, some of the choices we try to make for you around logging, et cetera, et cetera. And then also, once you write enough function code, you start to realize that once you start to do something semi-complex, 
that function looks as large as a normal application, right? Modern web frameworks these days are pretty simple to use. So when you think about the function signatures serverless platforms ask you to write, they eventually start looking like function main in any other programming language. So that's when I took a step back and said, what does serverless mean? Because it can't just be event-driven functions and that's going to rule the world. Like it just didn't make sense for me. So stepping back, I really like where tools like Cloud Run landed, where take a standard container and then allow people to specify how you want them to run it. It could scale to zero like functions. It could run forever like a VM. And then you have your choice of what events or protocols you want to map to it. So I think what I've learned through that journey of implementing one, using one, and then stepping back to see how do we bring the whole world forward to that mindset is that, you know, most people don't really care too much about the implementation details. The real trick is how do you bring something like the serverless operational and pricing model to existing software? You're really a lifelong learner. You're a lifelong teacher. You're constantly putting yourself in these situations to be knowledgeable and sometimes even an expert of a specific topic. And even while answering these questions, you're a very like well-paced, calm. I would imagine that maybe it's the same while you're learning and teaching also. What are some of the things that you do to help you, you know, stay composed while learning about a difficult subject or talking about something that you don't necessarily feel like you're an expert in yet? I don't want to miss the moment. I remember when I first learned how to do shell scripting. I remember writing a for loop and it clicked for me why it was working, right? So some people that have never written programs before, or if you've been written, writing programs for a long time, you may have forgotten the feeling of when you were able to communicate with the machine and it do what you told it to do. And for me, that was when I wrote my very first for loop and understand what would happen. And so I felt like I had all this amazing amount of control. I remember just looking around like, who do I tell first? Who do I tell first that I know what the hell I'm doing? <laughs> and I felt like I leveled up, right? Like in a video game, you found the magical sword. So now you can go and deal with the final boss. I felt like I just got a new piece of equipment. And I just started thinking about all the problems where I was using pure brute force versus using this new tool I had so I can go revisit some of those problems. So when I'm studying something new, I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to feel like I'll never get it. But if I'm patient enough and understand like the underpinnings, and I notice that if I just go at it, maybe that day three, it clicks. And what I try to do is make sure I don't miss the feeling. It makes me wonder, just like with code or with technology, I'm sure you found that magical sword in your presentation and your keynoting. Uh, is there a particular story where you feel like you leveled up, where you exceeded your own expectations on the stage? Oh my goodness. I think there's probably three times, maybe four. The first time I remember my first big talk was in PuppetConf, the very first one. I was working in enterprise for about three years in a financial institution, and we started bringing Puppet in really early. And I was doing, you know, local meetups, but I remember they gave me a speaking slot at PuppetConf in Portland. So I get there and, you know, I'm like trying to look super smart. I have you know, all of this stuff on the slides. I'm trying to make sure that I'm doing everything the professionals do. But something was like, Kelsey, you got to put a little bit of your personality. And I remember I threw in this Samuel Jackson meme 
photo is like where he's kind of pointing at the crowd with his Pulp Fiction uh, hairdo. And right. he's like, say X one more time. And I was like, <laughs> guys, if we keep talking about puppet faces, I'm going to scream. And I remember clicking the clicker. And that big slide came up and it says, say it again. <laughs> and everyone started laughing. And then at that moment, I knew I had permission to be myself. So that was the first one. And I, and I felt like that changed the way I approached speaking at a conference. The second one was when I got the chance to be an MC at GopherCon by accident. I went to the very first Go conference in Denver. Brian Kettleston and Eric St. Martin put on this fantastic conference for the Go community. And it had the creators of Go there. I'm working at a small startup out of Portland at this point. And I remember I just got a talking slot and I was ready to go for my keynote. And I'm sitting in the audience and I think we probably had about 700 people there, really nice facility. It was at the Denver Convention Center. So I'm sitting there and I noticed like they were having a hard time kind of emceeing, right? Because everyone was new to the conference game on their side. So I'm glad they put it together for the community. So after they introduced the first talk, I went to the back and said, hey, you know, I'm Kelsey Hightower. I think I speak fourth. I noticed that you all are kind of struggling a little bit. Do you mind if I try my hand at emceeing a conference uh, just to see what I could do? Here's the thing. I've never emceed any event in my life, right? So I don't know where this crazy amount of confidence came from, but I was so hyped up to just even be at the event. So they let me come out. So I remember after, I think it was Rob Pike gave his talk, I came out and said, hey, I'm Kelsey Hightower. Uh, you may not know me, but I'm a guy in the GO community. I'm going to try to be your MC for the day. And I'm telling you, it felt like a comedy show. Mm. And I felt like, wow, I can actually do something outside of just a pure technical presentation. And I had so much fun. I saw my friends in the audience. And then I went on to MC that particular event for the next maybe two or three years afterwards. There was one more where I wanted to do something different. I wanted to leave the demos behind. I wanted to just try something else. So I was at DevOps Days Austin. And I remember there was like this nice lineup of speakers. And everyone was kind of, you know, doing their DevOps talks and talking about change in large enterprises. And I don't know why I was thinking there should be more technical content, but I tweeted something around, there's not enough technical content. I'm going to pivot my talk and go super deep technically. Now, this is not something you say at a DevOps event, especially <laughs> on Twitter. And people rightfully so called me out and said, hey, it's not all about the tech. All you do is lean on your crutch of technology. Maybe you're afraid to be vulnerable. And I'm sitting here like, what? Maybe it's true. So I go back to my hotel the night before my talk, and I just start writing. I just open up a Google Doc. And it's like, there's no way I'm going to remember this. So I'm just going to write. And I think it was maybe two or three pages. My technical presentation is now scrapped. So I went up, they called my name, and we're at the Longhorn Texas Stadium. And they had a really nice space in there. So I go up, I'm looking out in the audience, Andrew Schaefer, all kind of friends that I knew from the industry at the time, Ashley McNamara. And I remember sitting out to the audience and I started reading from my laptop. And I got to a point where I looked through the camera and said, mom, I love you. It felt like seven minutes went by and everyone's tearing up in the audience. And I'm telling my story for the first time, 
of how I get into tech. We laughed, we smiled, we cried, we took it serious. And at the end, I closed the laptop. And everyone came up and, you know, there were hugs, there were real deep conversations. And that's where I found the human in the engineer and was able to put it on full display. That's a great story. It reminds me of one of the reasons why Chris and I started this podcast in the first place. We wanted to give cybersecurity a voice, but we also wanted to represent the Black community. There's not really that many Black people in cybersecurity, and I'm sure it's the same for enterprise infrastructure, right? There's probably not that many Black engineers, and surely not when you first got started in that. What is your stance on looking at the representation of the Black community and are you doing anything to boost and show other young, talented, and smart Black individuals that they can look at this thing called infrastructure engineering and get into it? This is where I say we'll probably only have the wrong answers, right? Because there are people who study this kind of stuff. They're professionals. They've done the research. They've done the hard work. All I have is my lived myopic experience here. So if I offend anyone for sharing my experience, uh, you have my apology now. When I was coming up, tech wasn't something I even cared or wanted to do. That's just facts, right? I wanted to play professional sports. I wanted to be what the world at the time considered professional. And tech really wasn't that thing, right? No one knew about these amazing salaries and this amazing opportunity. I didn't know anyone who worked in that field. It just wasn't on my radar at all. And once I got to high school, I got exposed to tech, right? In a way that was like an elective that said, hey, uh, here's AutoCAD and, you know, here's things that you can compete in at the state level. And I kind of got this exploratory wheel of the world of technology. At that point, I'm 16 years old and that's the first exposure that I have into tech, but I'm still not clear what's required to really participate. I know I'm learning, but it's not clear. And so when it's time to go to college, and I did go for a couple of weeks, those introductory classes were, you know, Word and Excel. And I'm like, this cannot be what Bill Gates was doing when he discovered how to do what he did to start Microsoft. So again, the road for me, it just didn't, it, it wasn't very clear if this was even the right trajectory or if it was ever going to make sense. I think education played a very valuable role in just getting exposed to the people who had done it before. When you look at the job ads, they want 100,000 years of experience in every technology. And it just doesn't seem like it's a great entry point for most people, especially me, a black male trying to figure out how to get into the industry. It just wasn't clear. And I believe for a lot of people, it still isn't clear. So education is a big component. And this is why I continue to show up as an engineer. And as an engineer, I know when I'm on those stages, there is someone somewhere that says, wow, this person looks like me and look what they're doing. This person is doing the hard stuff. This person is doing all the things. And for some people, just like that Emil Jackson slide that everyone laughed at, this person is giving me permission to say, there is no more excuses of why I can't do these things too. What else do I do? More explicitly, I get people on Twitter all the time and say, hey, you know, I don't really know what race they are, but sometimes they are someone else that looks like me. And they'll say, Kelsey, can I get a little bit of advice? How do you deal with the situation where you're the only black person in the room? 
And I get to share my experience with them and say, listen, it sucks that that's the case. But guess what? The world is also big. There's a whole continent of people that look like us. So the U.S. shouldn't decide or dictate our entire view of the world. So this is why I think it's important to understand that there is other places in the world where that isn't always the scenario. And I think that's helpful to remind people that there is a place that that's not always the case. And lastly, I'm very patient on the phone. There are people who are getting their first tech offer and they want to understand the parameters. They want to know where do they take their career trajectory. And all I do is just try to share mine, hopefully leave a few tips of wisdom. And I explain to them that it's going to be hard, but I also explain to them that it's worth it and they can do it. And so that's just going to always be my lifelong philosophy is that education is going to be a big enabler for a lot of people. But we also got to think beyond the struggle as well. We're not going to always be struggling. We're not going to always need help from someone else. Sometimes we will be the ones helping other people. And sometimes we got to learn how to help other people too. If you struggle for so long, sometimes you lose the understanding that when you come out on the other side, you have to behave a little differently. You'll be able to afford to behave a little differently. And sometimes that means reaching back or reaching forward and helping other people in your previous situation. So that's kind of my view on that. There's no cut and dry answer. I know everyone says we just do more of this, we do more of that. I think we got to do more of everything and hopefully lead someone to where they want to be. Kelsey, usually this is the time in the podcast where we ask specifically for the listener a piece of advice for them to go about their journeys with more confidence and more direction. But I'd like to take a moment and just ask a question for Ron and myself. We feel like this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to inspire people in technology and cybersecurity, and not only the people that are already here, but the people that don't even know that this is an avenue that they can take. We want to bring them into the fold, bring them into the fray. What piece of advice would you have for Ron and me about inspiring more people and continuing to get people motivated about being in technology and making a difference? I think for me, I wish someone would have told me, even though I did it anyway, it's okay to start. I think a lot of times as seasoned professionals, we forget what it's like to start. I started, you know, after the computer store, one of my first tech jobs was racking and stacking servers. Another one of my early tech jobs was answering support calls on the phone in a cubicle, picking up the phone and taking random tech support questions and filling out tickets. It's not as glamorous as, you know, someone sitting behind a nice, well-lit office making six figures. It wasn't like that in the beginning. My first, you know, certification was the A-plus certification, where I was learning about motherboards and wearing a, you know, strap on my wrist so that I didn't fry the motherboard when I was putting in a 56K modem. It's okay to start. And I think a lot of times we get discouraged when we get into tech and we're not automatically a software or senior engineer or a senior security analyst. You don't have to start that way. You can start in an adjacent field, QA, uh, system administration, all those things are valuable no matter what your role is. So I think what we got to do is give ourselves permission to start. Thank you so much for everything you've done for our community, for technology, for the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have going on in your life. What are the best ways that people can do that? Podcasts like these, I spend a lot of my time on Twitter. Every once in a while, I'll post a link uh, for office hours. 
so I can learn from you, the community, or maybe you can learn a little bit from me. My DMs are open, so if you want to drop a message, I do try to scan it periodically and answer as many questions as I can. And if I'm doing anything, if I'm speaking anywhere or working on anything interesting, I'll typically post it to Twitter. So you can follow me at Kelsey Hightower on Twitter. Excellent. We will be sure to drop that in the show notes for everyone to check out. Would highly encourage everyone to stay up to date with Kelsey and all the things that he's doing. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. If you enjoy our content, it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media, told a friend, or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. 